Area 10 Faith Community meets in the historic Bird Theater in Carytown in Richmond, Virginia. We worship together at 10 a.m. on Sunday mornings, both in person and online at youtube.com slash area10church. Kid-friendly programming is also available at the same time just down the street at 2810 at Community Gathering Place. We hope to see you at the Bird Theater soon. Now, on to this week's message. Today is, without question, the most important day of the year, the most important day in human history, the most important day on the calendar. And I, and, and I want to make that argument first because some of you are like, is today the most important day? Because we think of Easter as, you know, Easter, it's like, it's like chocolate and bunnies and that Easter turf, AstroTurf stuff. And then there's like peeps and things like that. And it's basically like big hats and people wear pastels and it's, we sort of think of it like... It's like the Kentucky Derby with chocolate, you know. And so when I say Easter is the most important day of the year, if you think that, you're like, no, nah, that ain't it. Okay, that is fake Easter. Real Easter is actually the most important day of the year. And it's not even close. Like, think of the days that you would say, this is the most important day of the year, your birthday. Okay, that's important to you and your mom. But to the rest of us, it's okay. We'll, we'll celebrate with you. But it's not the most important, right? Um, days like 4th of July big deal in America, but America's like 200 years old, and we're the only ones who apparently celebrate 4th of July. I've asked my British friends, and they don't make a big deal out of it. So, all right, so 4th of July, whatever. Uh, Halloween, that's fun, but let's be honest, it's a little weird, it's a little creepy, it's kind of odd. I, I know we enjoy it, but it's not the most important day of the year. Maybe you want to advocate for Christmas and say that's the most important day of the year, but that becomes this whole consumerist Santa Claus thing, and that gets weird. Also, even if you want to go to the traditional Christian religious story around Christmas, the reason Christmas is important is still because of Easter. The reason we celebrate the birth of Jesus is because how he died and resurrected that we're going to talk about today. So Easter is the most important day of the year. It is being celebrated by, give or take, about 2 billion people today around the world and has been celebrated by billions of people for a couple thousand years. This is the day, and I'm excited about it, and, and I want to talk to you about it, and if you've been here before, or if you've been here on Easter, you know what we're going to talk about. You know, preachers, we talk to each other, like, what are you talking about on Easter? And it's like the, the thing I talked about last Easter, like, it is the thing, and, and that's okay, because it's a story that needs to be told, and it needs to be retold. But if you're here, and you're like, eh, really? Are we going to do this? Yeah, we're going to do it. But you're probably wondering, like, what's all the fuss about? So let me talk to you about what all the fuss is about, and then you decide what you want to do with it, okay? Uh, if you go back to the source of Easter, about what is, this, what is going on, you go all the way back to about 30 AD in the first century, and Jesus lived and walked and, um, among the Jews and among the Israelites in, in ancient Israel in the Roman Empire, and he taught, and he taught incredible things that we still teach today, like the Golden Rule and the Sermon on the Mount and those sorts of things. He taught all these things, and then um, in this week, uh, what we call Holy Week, he went to Jerusalem, and on Friday of Jerusalem, on Thursday night, he was arrested, and on Friday, he was crucified. He was tried by the Jewish authorities who kicked him over to the Roman authorities under a guy named Pontius Pilate, and they sentenced him to be whipped and then hung on a cross where he, they put a crown of thorns on his head and where he died on that cross on Friday. They took his body off of the cross, which was a very normal sort of Roman public execution. They took his body off that cross. They laid it in a tomb where he stayed dead Friday, Saturday, until something happened on Sunday morning 
that we, we still talk about and that we're talking about today. This is the origin story. If you like origin stories, this is the origin story of Easter, and it is the reason there are churches today. It is the reason why anyone gathers and celebrates over the last couple thousand years on Easter is what I want to read to you. Now, there are, there are four gospel writers, four guys who wrote down sort of the biographical sketch of Jesus, what he did, what he taught, and the last one to write it down was a guy named John. John was an eyewitness to this. You're going to see how he writes himself into the story here. And John saw this thing happen, and he writes it down. And it's recorded in the book of John, uh, chapter 20. And I'll start with verse 1 and read it to you. I'll read a few verses and then just offer some comments about it. Uh, Chapter 20, starting with verse 1. This is what it says. We'll put it on the screen. Now, on the first day of the week, now the way they count that, Sunday morning, right? On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. All right, a couple things to notice here real quick. Um, Jesus is laid in a tomb. The way they would do that, they'd wrap him up like a mummy, basically, and bury him, and they'd put some burial spices there. Somebody would come bring burial spices to put on him, like myrrh and things like this. Um, And then uh, they would put him in this tomb, and they put a big, heavy boulder kind of thing in front of the tomb to to seal off the entrance that this is where the dead body goes in there. Uh, Mary goes there um, in in the morning, and she gets there, and she says, wait, the tomb... The stone that was in front of that tomb is gone, and Jesus is not in there. So she's like, this is bizarre. And so she was one of Jesus' closest followers. She was kind of been around him for years. She runs to the people that we, we call the apostles, the, this, this inner circle of Jesus' followers, guys like Simon Peter. She runs to tell them, and she runs to Simon Peter, and it says, and the other disciple, this is John, who wrote this book, referring to himself in the story. He refers to himself as the other disciple... The one whom Jesus loved. We all want to write our own reviews. I know. And that's fun. Good for him. He gets, he gets to tell the story. You're going to write, he's going to write it his way. And the way he writes this is he, he's not saying who he is, but he's saying, you know, the one that Jesus loved, John, me. You know, okay, so he, he tells the story. Mary comes to him and Peter, and she says, hey, they have taken Jesus. Her, her response is, they took Jesus' body. He's not there. I don't know where they put him. Look what happens next. Verse 3. So Peter went with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloth lying there, but he did not go in. All right. Not a lot of other information here, except that John and Peter took off running together. One of them was quicker as a runner, maybe a little more athletic. Doesn't really say who, he just says, you know, the other guy. He ran, and he reaches the tomb first, and what he does, he looks in to verify what Mary Magdalene has seen, and he looks in, and he sees that the linen cloths, like you wrap a mummy, all these cloths are lying there, but Jesus is not there, and he says he, he, he didn't go in, Okay. But he lets us know he's a faster runner, which is, you know, nice, I guess. Good for him. Verse 6. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lined with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. 
So what do we get from this? Simon Peter clearly is not as fast of a runner as John is. He arrives afterwards. John wants us to know. He arrives afterwards. He's the second one to get there in this foot race. And when he gets there, he sees the same linen cloth. And then we get this little detail. He sees um, the face cloths. More details, right? The face cloths are like nicely folded and off in a different place by itself. Um, that's pretty interesting, right? A few more details. Verse 8. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture, then he must rise from the dead, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. We get it, John. You're very fast. We're all very impressed at how fast you are. I, multiple times he was asked to let us know who, who won the foot race. It's, it's weird, right? But the story is, they get there. They go verify what Mary Magdalene saw, and they're like, wait a second, he was dead, and they get there on this Sunday morning, and he's back from the dead. Let's not miss the point here. Um, There's a resurrection that has happened. Jesus is no longer dead, and they're not the only people that are going to experience this. They're going to eventually see Jesus. They're going to have breakfast with him on a beach. They're going to see him in, in different places. Uh, the Gospels will, and, and, and the New Testament is later going to account over 500 people are going to see him at some point over the next few weeks. So this isn't just like a one-time hallucination. A lot of people are going to see this. Um, and these disciples, these followers of Jesus, are going to spend the rest of their lives telling anybody who will listen about what just happened. They're going to say, okay, he was dead, very dead. We watched him murdered. And then we had breakfast with him a couple days later on the beach. And then we hung out with him, and he talked to us, and he showed us where they had stuck a spear in his side, and he showed us where they had stuck nails in his hands. Um, And they're going to tell everybody about this, and the news about this event is going to spread. From a few dozen, a few hundred disciples, a few few committed people are going to tell other people. And this is going to spread all around Jerusalem where this happens, you know, kind of word of mouth through the city. Then it's going to spread out to Samaria, the region next to them. And then it's going to spread out into a bunch of other cities around the Roman Empire, as far away up all the way to Italy and to Rome. It's going to go into North Africa. Over the course of the lifetime of the people who were there, this news about this is going to spread out to places far away like India. The, the, word, is, the, the, the word that Jesus was dead and then he's alive again, the resurrection, that's going to be spread for hundreds of years and from a few hundred disciples when it happened until about 300 AD where Christianity grows to about 30 million people who are now following Jesus. Even the emperor Constantine eventually becomes a follower of Jesus. This is profound. No religious movement has ever grown like that in in the history of the world before then or since. Have we ever seen anything like that where a few dozen people become 30 million people over 300 years. And they did it without the convert or die mentality. They didn't conquer other people and say, you have to become a Christian. At this point, the way it spread was word of mouth. People were like, I saw something. I can't unsee it. Jesus was dead. He's no longer dead. This is a really big deal. So let's talk about it because we're, we're going to be a little skeptical. Something happened back then. And the questions you might ask if you're thinking about this or maybe even hearing it for the first time or you've thought about it before, the questions you might ask are this. Number one, is it true? Number two, is it good? And number three, does it even matter? And so I want to talk about those, those questions and then, and then we'll be done. Number one, is this even true? Is it true? 
Anytime you have historical events, it gets pretty tricky to, to, to ascertain the truth, right? If you told me some facts about World War II, I can believe you, and there's some history books, and maybe we could find somebody who was there in this day and age, right? You go back to World War I, you go to the Civil War, you can't find people who were alive who were there and saw and experienced it. So I have to believe on some measure of faith that what someone is telling me about the event is true. This is true for anything in history. We weren't there. You can't put it under a microscope. You can't test it. You have no, you have no history. to like, you, you just have to rely on this historian told you it's true, and then you believe it by faith, and you go, okay, that sounds reasonable. I guess that's true. And we weren't there for the resurrection, so we don't know. Were people biased when they gave us history? Sure. Was John biased when he wrote this down? Probably to some degree, yeah. Do people in history, when they give historical accounts, do they get the details wrong? Sometimes they do, right? I mean, that's certainly possible. But if you're going to believe anything about anything that happened before you were alive, you're going to have to accept it on some measure of faith. So did this actually happen? If you read the story like we did, John's testimony of the event, it reads like eyewitness testimony, doesn't it? I mean, we joke about it, but the details he gives about him running and who got there first, that is not the kind of stuff you make up in telling a story. That's, you, you tell that because that's what happens. He's giving details about what actually happened. It's eyewitness testimony. Also, the apostles didn't believe it when it happened. That doesn't make them look very good, especially because when John wrote this, the apostles are leaders of the church. So he's writing something that would effectively undermine the leadership of the church by making them look skeptical and bad when Jesus rises from the dead. And so to me and to others, that's a pretty compelling point. It's like, yeah, this looks like eyewitness testimony because this is what happened. The apostles looked bad because they, didn't, they were skeptical, just like many of us were skeptical. There's also the detail that the first person that discovered it, Mary Magdalene's a woman. Other people have pointed this out. I've pointed this out before, too. In the first century, women were not considered reliable sources of testimony. You could not have a woman testify in court, that kind of thing. So the idea that the resurrection was announced by women was like, who would believe that? Well, the reason John wrote it that way is because it is what actually happened. He's not trying to make it look more trustworthy or that this is going to look really good if I have this person announce it first. No, it, it, it's just this is what really happened in the ancient world. Is John biased in some way? Sure, but it doesn't mean he's lying. And even outside of that, if you look at factors outside of the story that we just read, the account, the, uh, the account of Jesus' resurrection, there's a lot there. The, uh, Eleven of the apostles of the original 12, 11 of, the, 11 of them are going to be martyred. They're going to be killed for their faith. Uh, Peter is going to be hung in Rome. He's going to be hung upside down, crucified upside down. Thomas is going to go all the way to India and carry the gospel there, and he's going to be run through with a sword. Uh, 11 out of 12, except for John himself, the one Jesus loved. Uh, John is not going to be martyred. He's going to die an old man um, exiled out, out, out off the coast of Turkey. Um, and if, and if these people are going to be martyred because they believe in the resurrection, let me just ask you, is there anything you believe so strongly that you'd be killed for? Is there anything that you'd be like, man, I believe that to my core, and I can't unsee what I saw, and I can't not believe what I believe, and you would have to kill me for it? Um, that's what the apostles did. They, they died 
believing in the resurrection. They didn't, they didn't be like, well, we all know that was a hoax, but let's die for it anyway. You don't die for hoaxes, right? You die because you in your core believe it's true. So the apostles did that, and Christianity grew. It grew from regular people saying to one another, uh, Jesus was dead, and then he was not. And this is a big deal. Um, now, I know that's hard for us to swallow a couple thousand years later. I think there are legitimate reasons to believe in the resurrection, but the resurrection is difficult to swallow. If I, if I told you this ancient army attacked this ancient army and this army won and they conquered these people, you'd be like, I mean, I can believe that. That sounds right. Somebody wrote that in a history book. Um, that's not hard to believe because there's nothing supernatural about it, right? It's like an army attacked another army. If I said to you, Alexander the Great uh, conquered much of the Roman, what is now the Roman Empire, what became the Roman Empire. He conquered much of the Mediterranean, the whole, the whole world. He wept because there were no more worlds to conquer. If I tell you that stuff about Alexander the, the Great, you're going to go, yeah, I read about that in history class. My history teacher told me that. I believe it. Even though there's less evidence of Alexander the Great and what he did than there is actually of what some things Jesus did. We still go, okay, I can believe it with Alexander the Great. But if I said to you, Alexander the Great every morning would levitate off of the ground several feet and float above the people in the air or, or walk through walls like he's a ghost, you'd be like, I'm not so sure about that. I can believe he lived, but I'm not so sure about that. And in, we're, we're in a similar spot with the resurrection. I can tell you that Jesus lived and he taught and even maybe that he was crucified and you can go, that makes sense, I get it, okay. But when I say he rose people from the dead, he himself rose from the dead, he walked on water, he calmed a storm, he healed people of leprosy, all these things, then we sort of go, man, I, I don't know. But here's my question with that. Are you comfortable saying that you know it all? Or are you comfortable even saying that there's nothing supernatural in the world? Like, have you lived enough, not, uh, enough life to know that there are just some weird things going on out there? And I ain't even talking about politics. I'm, I just mean, like, there are some weird things that happen in life that you can't explain. And there are forces at work that we don't understand. Haven't we learned enough to know that we don't know? That maybe there are supernatural things at work. Uh, let, me, let me talk to my science nerds here for a minute. Let's go the smallest level of, of, of life, uh, of, of the building blocks of life. The smallest thing we think of is atoms, right? Atoms, smaller than molecules, like the building blocks of the body, at, these little atoms. Um, they, they came up with a particle collider, and they were able to break atoms down into subatomic particles so they can get even smaller than atoms. And they, developed these, they, they discovered these things called quarks. And um, I, I nerd out a little bit with this stuff. And they, they, um, they, they named quarks uh, based on the movement of them when they would break the atom apart. And they called some of them up and down, some of them top and bottom, which makes sense. It's very, like, scientific, right? Well, these, we'll call them up because they went up, and these are called down, as top, they stay here, bottom, whatever. And then they had two quarks out of the six that they named strange and charm. Up, down, top, bottom, strange and charm. It doesn't fit, right? Well, how do you describe the indescribable? What do you do at a subatomic level when you go, yeah, I have no idea why this is doing what it's doing? Like the best science we have, and we're sitting here going, strange? I, I, it's strange. Call it strange. I don't know. Charm. Like it's weird. Like there's just weird things going on at a subatomic level that as much as we know, we still don't know. And we still don't quite get it. Just at the smallest level. And so when you tell me that Jesus walked on water, I'm like, can't he reorder physics if he wants to? Like I think he could. Is that hard to believe? 
uh, last summer I was in Vancouver, and I, and I was having breakfast, and another guy was at the table, and I struck up a conversation. This guy might be the smartest person I've ever met in person. He was an astrophysicist from Cambridge. So he was very Cambridge-y and very astrophysicist-y. He was very smart. And, um, and I was like, ooh, I, I want to ask him questions about all the physics things and all the astros or whatever. Uh, so I, I asked him, you know, I was like, just start asking some questions about the universe because, you know, that's what he does. And so he's telling me about research and stuff. And he told me something really interesting. He said, you know, we've been able to study the edges of the universe. And I'm like, I'm thinking, like, what's out there on the edge of the universe? Do they have, like, a 7-Eleven? Like, what's out? What do you, when you look out there, what do you see? Like, so I'm asking, like, what, you know, the edge of the, like, what? And he goes, well, it's really weird because the Big Bang theory that, you know, that we sort of worked with would suggest that, um, you know, everything was very small and then exploded out. And so what you would expect on the edge of the universe is that things would get farther, that, that at the very edges that things are starting to slow down in the way they're expanding. You would expect it would be slowing down because it was going fast at the beginning, but as it goes farther and farther out, it slows down, right? Or he said, you might expect that the gravitational pull of the center of the universe would pull everything back together. He said, so what we're expecting to see is that things are slowing down on the edges or they're getting, they're starting to contract and come back. And he said, what we are seeing is that out on the edges of the universe, things are going away even faster and faster. And he doesn't know what to do with that. And, and we don't know in science, right? We're like, and you can read all that and look it all up. I'm just saying there's a whole lot of stuff that doesn't add up. Even if you just want to go science and go into all that world, there's a whole lot of things that under our telescopes and our microscopes, we cannot figure it out. And some of it shows elements of design. Some of it is just mind-blowing, the things that are going on. So when I say someone came back from the dead, I don't have a hard time believing it. Maybe you do. But I'm like, look, there's stuff, there's stuff about the way the world works, the way the universe is that we don't understand. There's dimensions to reality that we just don't get. And even scientists are seeing there's just, this is odd. And so if there's a creator of the universe, if God, as Scripture says, if God spoke the universe to existence, I don't have a hard time believing he came back from the dead, that he rose Jesus from the dead. If you can speak the universe into existence, you can come back from the dead, no problem. And so that's what I think actually went, went on here. So I think it's true, and I think there's some reasons to believe it's true. Secondly is this, is it good? Is it good? The resurrection is always talked about like it's good news. Not just the resurrection being good news, but the whole Christian message. Jesus came, he lived, he taught, he died. He taught us how to live, uh, that we're supposed to follow in his footsteps. All of this is like, here's the good news. Jesus died for your sins. The way, all the ways you've messed up, he died for that. And then he came back from the dead to show us a new way and show us hope after death and all of that stuff. Um, is that all actually good news? Because the resurrection, if anything, the resurrection is going to give credibility to his teaching. Like if, you, if I came to you and I said, tell me how to hit a golf ball, and you're like, all right, well, this is the way you're supposed to dress the ball. Here's how to hold the club. Here's what your swing should look like get up there and do it, and then I hit it, and I practice it. And then you put down a golf ball, and you grab a driver, and you smash it 350 yards straight down the fairway. I'm going to go, well, I guess you know what you're talking about. Like, clearly, you've just proven that you know a thing. And in a lot of ways, uh, this is what Jesus does. Yes, he's taught about, he teaches about greed and, and money and heaven and hell and God, what God is like and what the Father is like, and, 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 and he 
you know, sexuality and all of the things. Jesus teaches all these things. And then he dies and comes back from the dead. And you have to look at that and go, I guess this guy knows something about what's going on in the world. Like he is, like we're playing checkers and he's playing like 4D chess or something like that. He's like on this other level. So when Jesus teaches how to live, the good, the bad, the right, the wrong, and he says, this is life, this is what matters, this is how you're created, and then he turns around and he kicks death in the teeth on the cross and comes back from the dead, um, I guess he knows some things. So the question, though, is all the stuff about Jesus, is this even good? Because if you follow the news and you listen to social media and you see the way Christianity is talked about, particularly in the West right now, in, in our day and age, it does not always look good out there. Um, it does not always represent well. Um, it it's, uh, can be pretty embarrassing at, at times. Um, and, and we can go like, man, I, if this resurrection stuff is true, I'm not sure that it leads to good things. Um, Christians today in America believe the wrong things about what you're supposed to believe today in America and what is popular in the cultural moment right now. Um, honestly, Jesus' teaching is that way. Listen to things Jesus said in his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 28. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. To a, to a culture that promotes and exports pornography like no culture in the world, do you think it's popular to quote Jesus on this who says, if you look at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery in your heart? No. It's not popular. That's not the current cultural moment. That's not what we're about. We don't like that. We don't care about that. That sounds stupid. Verse 22, just a couple verses earlier. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Wait, anger is the problem now? Like, everybody gets angry. It's one of the emotions we, you know, it's very normal. And Jesus comes along and is like, no, even anger is, is a significant problem. And it's not just those issues. Jesus' teaching on marriage and divorce, very unpopular today. Jesus' teachings on heaven and hell, it's very unpopular today. Jesus taught a lot about greed and money. How unpopular do you think Jesus' teachings on greed and money are in a culture like ours that's built on capitalism, built on greed is good, right? Built on this, this, this idea how unpopular is Jesus' teaching? I've said before, I don't have to make up things to be offensive. I can just read you Jesus word for word, and people will go, ooh, I don't, I don't like that at all. And so in light of even just what Jesus said, you might be like, I don't even know if this is good. It may be true, but I don't know if it's good. Or in light of Christians that you know that represent him badly. Apparently, Gandhi uh, once said, I like your Christ, I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. And I wish I could say to Gandhi, yo, Gand, brother, that is not true. Christians are like Christ. But unfortunately, I get what he means. I get how we fall short. I get how I fall short. I get how I'm not like what I profess to be, I, I, I understand it. And so maybe you don't believe in the resurrection because you don't want to be like the people who do believe in it. But I wish you could see some of the things that I see in the day-to-day. -day. In the past year, I've gone to 
a meeting for refugee care in Richmond, Afghan refugees. And I sat in a meeting of about 30 people talking about how are we going to welcome new people into our community and help them get settled into the culture. And it was a room of Christians from churches, all trying to figure out how to mobilize their churches to welcome refugees. And they're connected to mostly Christian organizations, with the exception of the, inter- the IRC, which is one of the biggest refugee resettlement organizations in America, which is not run by Christians, but all of the people who volunteer and help are typically Christians for, for this thing. Now, this isn't, this isn't to brag and say, Christians are getting it done and they're so great. This all happens quietly in meetings that you don't know about among people that you're not seeing. This is, you know, on a Wednesday afternoon, they're getting together and figuring out how do we make people feel welcome here. And I see this happening all over the community and not just in refugee care. I see it in foster care as well. In the foster care adoptive world, uh, the the data shows that Christians are twice as likely as non-Christians to adopt from the foster care system. Um, That's significant and it's going on across across the country. Uh, Christians are stepping up in quiet ways all over the place. No, they're not better than other people. It's not, it's, not all, it's not all of that. I'm just saying, if you're gonna pile on and say, oh, Christians are so terrible, look at what is actually going on out there in the world and not just what the media tells you is going on. Christians are involved in all sorts of things and are doing incredibly good work around the world. Can Christians be jerks? Yes. Uh, but let's be honest. Like, People can be jerks, no matter what their worldview is. When I would still argue that if you look at advances in medicine and work, poverty alleviation and education, and you look around the globe for the last 2,000 years, what you're going to see is that Christianity has done so much good in the world. Oh, yeah, but what about the Crusades? Yeah, okay, there's stuff. There's stuff. The Inquisition's a crusade. There's things that aren't good. No question. You can't hide from that. But there's so much good that has been done in the name of Christ throughout history. So the resurrection, is it true? I think there's legit reasons to believe it. Is it good? I think there's reasons to believe that it is good, even when it doesn't align with the current American 2023 cultural opinions on things. I think it is good. And then lastly, I just want to talk about this. Does it even matter today? Does it even matter And this is where I think the resurrection really shines. Christianity flourished in the ancient world, not with a convert or die mentality. It was not, you better accept my Jesus or I'm going to kill you. Christianity flourished um, among regular people who started living differently than their neighbors in the Roman Empire. And they lived like people who had real hope. You see, the resurrection gives us real hope. It gives us a a glimpse of something that is beyond what we can see because the great problem for everybody in the history of history is this. One day I'm going to die, and then what happens? Nobody knows. And with the resurrection, we see, oh, wait, it's possible that death isn't the end. And Christians have believed from the beginning that because Jesus rose from the dead, we are also going to rise from the dead. Yes, one day we will die, but we will actually come back. And that belief changes everything. Um, it, it, it makes it so that we live differently in the here and now. I'll say it this way, what you believe about your future changes the way you live today. 
what you believe about what is coming will change the way you live right now. If you think you're going to get that degree at the end of college, then you will do the homework and do the work necessary and show up to the class to get the degree. If you think you're going to retire someday uh, in the villages in Florida, you will do the work now to put money away so that you can get a little golf cart and go do that thing. Like, if you think that's what's coming, you will put the money away today, right? Um, What you think about what is coming affects the way you live your life right now. Um, And the belief in the resurrection uh, gives us all a hope for the future. It says, look, if things don't work out in this life for me exactly the way I want them to, that's okay because there's a resurrection coming because this is not the end. If I don't get married and find my soulmate, that's okay because this is not the end. If I don't get the level of education that I wanted to, that's okay because this is not the end. If my life is more uncomfortable than I wanted it to be, that's okay because this is not the end. The resurrection takes death, which should just have a finality to it. It should be a period at the end of the sentence. And it turns that period into a comma and says, there's actually something else. There's a place we're going. There's a hope. There's a future. And we are going to, um, we're, we're going to be different. We're going to live in a world with no more pain and no more tears and no more sorrow. And we're going to have a new body, and it's going to be an incredible thing. The resurrection, the belief in the resurrection, our ultimate future, changes now. The hope of the resurrection changes the things now. Uh, The resurrection is the whole thing. This is why this is the most important day of the year and the most important day in history because this is everything, guys. Uh, uh, Amanda Miroslav Pelikan says, if Christ is not risen, nothing else matters. And if Christ is is risen, nothing else matters. It is the thing. So what do you do with that? Let me just give you a couple options and we're done. Number one, if, if you uh, believe what I'm saying and you've never given your life to Christ, get baptized into Christ. Give your life to him. Say, I'm going to follow you. Get baptized. We will immerse you in water. God's spirit will come to live inside you and you can start a new life. We call this being born again. You can be born again. Follow Christ. There's people getting baptized at the river today. Um, in, in a couple weeks, we'd like to baptize some people uh, in, down at 2810, uh, our, our property here. So... We are, we are ready to go if you want to get baptized. When we dismiss here, I'm going to be back by the next steps table. If you're interested in baptism, come talk to me. Let's have a conversation about maybe, maybe that is the right next step for you. And you go, man, I want to follow Jesus and, and give my life to him and be baptized. Um, maybe of all I said today, you're like, I'm still kind of skeptical. Let me encourage you to come back next week. Because uh, we're starting a series that I'm really excited about. We're going to start a new series. You got a card about it when you came in. It's called Cages. And let's just be honest and look at the cages culture is putting us in right now and look at ways to break free of them and, and what, what is a new way to be in the world. And so we'll, we'll look at uh, the cages that we're in, and we're going to do this for five weeks. There's a lot of good stuff to talk about. Um, I, I think you're going to get a lot out of it. So come back next week, and let's just talk about it. Let's back up a little bit. You're like, yo, I don't know if I'm in on the resurrection. Okay, let's just back up and talk about what is going on, why are we all believing what we believe, and where can we find hope um, in Christ that could be different than that. Um, so come back next week for that. And if you're a believer in Jesus, and you, and you came here already convinced, you're like, no, I, I believe in the resurrection. I have doubts, I have struggles, I have pain, all of that, but I'm in. And today's a day to celebrate. It's a, celebra- it's a day to celebrate. 
I love the way Russell Moore put this. He said, let us eat, drink, and be merry, for yesterday we were dead. We were. But because of the resurrection, because of the crucifixion and the resurrection, our sins have been paid for on the cross, and we are made alive again with Christ. We can be free.